0: Does anybody else in here feel kind of beat up by the world this week? I mean, I sure do. I've had a rough couple weeks, and, you know, for those of you that uh, can relate to that, you know, I just want to uh, say I can too, and, you know, maybe some of you can't. Maybe you guys are in a season of, you know, everything's going right, everything's going perfect, everything's going according to plan, and those are great times too. Those are times to, to, to give thanks to the Lord, but... For me personally, I've had a pretty rough go of it. seems like every area that you know and i'm I'm not up here I mean this isn't a therapy session or anything, but um, yeah, I just want to say, oh, I can use it for that, so <laughs> we might as well I don't know if Sean would appreciate that, but you know it's it truly is in those times that you you know you feel like you're going from battle to battle to battle, and the circumstances begin to compound themselves and it, it is it's discouraging and you know through those through those times though I mean what God's shown me is that despite whatever it is that's going on I mean those are truly the times that we're reminded how good and how strong and how loving our God is and when we look back we can see that even more clearly I just want to start out with reading a, a, a passage through a uh, Matthew 11 25 through 30. If you guys want to turn there, you can. Matthew 11:25, and I'll just begin reading. He says, "At that time, Jesus declared, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and Earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children." Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will." And my burden is light. And you know, never once through going through anything that I've gone through, have I come to the Lord and felt myself more burdened. Never once have I been going through something and come to the Lord and felt myself more anxious, or more angry, or more disappointed, or more discouraged. You know, every time that we come to the Lord, He's there for us. And not only is he there, but he promises to give us rest. That's not always the case when we come to one another, unfortunately. You know, sometimes we come to someone else and, you know, maybe they don't really want to hear what we have to say. Maybe they're too busy. Maybe they're going through something that's worse. And so what we have to share maybe sounds kind of, uh, it's not really, you know, I've got, you know, Anyway. You know, we see that in Job's life where he called his best friends, those who came to minister to him, says, you guys are miserable comforters. You're not making me feel better, you're making me feel worse. You know, and I'm reminded in that, that what a blessing it is to have a good friend, to be a good friend, to be the kind of person that can also offer, as Jesus says, that rest for your souls, that understanding and that compassion. That's a rare thing in this world. When we come to the world for relief, we're met with platitudes and inspirational quotes. You know that is a huge deal these days isn't it i walk I go in a lot of people 's houses and I see in people 's houses a lot of these posters that'll have the you know the quote of you know, i don 't even have any memorized, but these inspirational quotes from all these figures uh, you know maybe Winston Churchill or Genghis Khan or you know Confucius or these these platitudes these quotes that appeal to our flesh, but they really don't do anything to nourish us spiritually. But when we come to our Savior, as He loves for us to do, we find peace and that rest for our souls. For He is everything we are not, and He is everything we need. And we come to Him in prayer and in the study and meditation of His Word, and that's what we're doing here this morning. So hopefully that's what we end up with today. I mean, really, that's my... Prayer for myself, for all of you, for those, is that we would find that rest for our souls, that peace, that respite from the troubles of the world that we're all dealing with on some level or another. I mean, we can always look at somebody and say, you know, it could always be worse. But we can always also look at someone and say, it can always be better, right? I mean, we're always kind of in that state. In my personal time lately, for myself, I've found a lot of inspiration and encouragement. In the life of Daniel, some of you may be familiar with him, but I think in these tumultuous days that we're in, you know, Daniel, we can benefit from a look at this great man's life. You know, if you've ever uh, never read through the book, you know, I'd encourage you to do so. There's a lot of prophecy, and there's a lot of stuff towards the end of the book, but you know, I mean, that's worthy study also too. But just the life of this young man and and what he went through and how he was used in this. Babylonian society. You know, Babylon being the epitome of a wicked, idolatrous nation. And, you know, even so far as at the end times, we're told, you know, Babylon kind of, again, being that symbol, that epitome of the world and of that, that idolatrous you know country. And we can look around and say, man, our country's looking a lot like Babylon lately. And so to look at Daniel and to take encouragement from his life, and I think the most the most famous, I mean, some of you might, uh, I could even ask, you know, I would do this in my, what, what, what's Daniel, I think, most famous for in the world? I mean, when you think of Daniel and the, anybody? The lion's den, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, Daniel being thrown to the lions, thrown into the lion's den. I mean, in Sunday school, that's kind of, I mean, we gear up for that one, right? I mean, that's the... That's the story there. So, and because it is, it's so we can relate to it so much. It's, so, it's such a graphic story. But basically, in this account, Daniel's enemies conspired against him and essentially tricked King Darius into condemning Daniel to death by throwing him to the lions, like I said. But God saved him. And in the morning, the king ran to the den, cried out for Daniel, and Daniel responded. He says, O king, and this is in Daniel six. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and before you. O king, I have done no harm. And because of this great testimony that Daniel had, one of blamelessness, of righteousness before God and before the king, and of a saving loving god that he's he's defined by serving continually king darius he then declares after david is saved he says i make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the god of daniel for he is a living god enduring forever his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end he delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now we also know from this account that Daniel's enemy... I always get Daniel and David mistaken. So if I do say David and don't catch it, I'm talking about Daniel. So Daniel, <laughs> his enemies were immediately dispatched. Do you remember that? They were uh, thrown to the lions themselves for their plot. And it says that the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Again, this very graphic story to where um, there's so many elements to it. But I think one of the most important elements of this whole story is that, and, and we're saying story, but this is a historical account. This really happened. Now, if you also remember from this account, Daniel's enemies were unable to find any fault in him at all. That he was blameless in his job. He was ethical. He was righteous. They, there was nothing they could find against him. And that it was only for his devotion to God that he was condemned. You know, it would be my first instinct upon such a judgment, a, a, uh, you know, upon being sentenced to, to death by these lions, that I would pray that God would spare me from enduring such a fate. God. You know, this is unjust. This is wrong. It's not fair. Lord, I'm innocent. You know this. You know my heart. You know I haven't done the things that they're accusing me of. You know, Jesus, I don't deserve this. Again, this isn't fair. I haven't done the things that they're accusing me of. Please keep me from getting thrown to the lions. Right? I mean, <laughs> I think that uh, we would all, we can all relate to that. But And we also know in this case that King Darius himself... Knew that this was bogus. And he labored all day to try to save Daniel from this fate. But because of their legal system, he, even he, being the king, was unable to deliver Daniel from being thrown to the lions. And, and you ask, you know, why was that? He's the king. Because the simple answer is that wasn't part of God's plan. It was God's plan for Daniel to get thrown. Into the lion's den. You say, How could that be? How could that be? Daniel had to go. Daniel needed to go. But I highly doubt he wanted to go, right? <laughs> we know even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion said, Father, if there's any other way, let it be so. But not my will, your will be done. And I think that was probably the heart of Daniel in this case. He didn't want to go. We have not one word of protest that Daniel gives in the Scripture to this judgment. He went. And that he went, again, because he had to. Because otherwise there's no story here. Otherwise there's no you know, lesson to be learned. But perhaps there were those people within the kingdom, maybe even some of his close associates, Upon hearing that Daniel had been condemned to this fate, that he had been found guilty of something, and he was going, hmm, yeah, you know, I always, I always thought there was something a little fishy about that guy. You know, I always, there was something I just, you know, didn't suit, sit me quite right. I didn't, you know, I never, really, I never really liked him anyway. Nothing could be that good, of course, you know, and then there's the whole, you know, wherever there's smoke, there's fire, you know, Daniel, he, you know there was there's some reason that this is happening to him. You know, and I think that there had to be that because I know, you know, that's our natures. That's what we do when we see someone suffering, when we see someone being accused of something. Our first instinct, because we're fallen, is to say, "Yeah, there must be something. There must be something to that." Rarely do we come to the first conclusion. And say, never, never. I mean, you know, perhaps there's people in your life that you would, but just, just think about that. You know, we like to assume somehow that possibly they're not right with God, that God's judging them. Maybe, even, maybe they are just being disciplined for what they're going through. You know, how could God allow someone to suffer so wrongly, wrongly? They have to deserve it because we know God's just, God's fair. God would not allow this to happen. And again, as I brought up Job, that was kind of the take that his friends had, right? Job, Job, there's, there's something going on here. There's something that you're missing. There's something that you're not admitting to. But that wasn't the case, was it? And, you know, if you look at the end of the book of Job, Job was entirely justified. God never blames Job for the things that he went through. You know, this thinking that we think that that's how God operates, it's really a carnal way of thinking. It's a pagan way of thinking. And it's essentially cruel. It's not even biblical or historical, for we see time and time again God allows even directly orchestrating circumstances that allow the godly to suffer. Is that wrong? Do you guys agree with that? I mean, we can look in our Bibles, it happens over and over again. The story we're talking about is that kind of story. But God does not allow that or even orchestrate that because He gets a kick out of making us miserable or that He loves to see us suffer. It's because God has a great miraculous plan that is impossible otherwise. Like I said, if God never sent David to the lion's, Darius would have never made that decree. You know, God would have never been able to reveal himself in this miraculous way if it had just stopped over here. If King Darius had said, you know, this is a bogus claim and we're just tossing this out. We're not going to, we're just going to throw this out. This isn't even, then we have no, we have, we have no miracle. We have no revelation of who God is and what he's able to do. You know, Darius would say, God is alive. God is a God who's able to save, and that's why he had to go. Now, we also know that Daniel's enemies were probably in a state of euphoria at this time. When that judgment went through, they were celebrating. They probably thought they'd been really clever, right? Man, that was a good plan. And we really got Darius just right in the palm of our hand. Did you see how all that worked out? And we knew it was going to work, right? And of course it worked. And they're slapping each other on the back. And they're, you know, they're thinking they're really smart. They're not men to be trifled with, you know. And in their foolish pride, they probably went to bed that night full of wine and good food and with a smile on their face. But then we see King Darius, again, this pagan king. And so affected by Daniel's ongoing testimony and faithfulness, his righteousness, that King Darius himself, he fasts, he humbles himself. And then at dawn, he's the first one running to the den. And the Bible says he cried out in anguish. And he says, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, But you have to understand what incredible faith this took. I mean, there was no chance of survival here. This was a death sentence. And for Darius to fast, and we can assume possibly pray, and to seek out God, and to to, to just humble himself in this way, the most powerful man in all the realm... To even have had a shred of hope that Daniel was alive in the morning shows what faith he had in this God whom Daniel served continually, whom he didn't quite know himself apparently, but he knew Daniel. And from that, he knew the testimony that he had, and he knew it had to be real, and that's what caused him to run to the tomb, or not to the tomb, what would have been a tomb, to the den in the morning and say, Daniel, Daniel, and call out for him with just the slightest possibility that Daniel might answer. We see how incredibly impacted that Darius had been by this great man of God. And I love how he does, he characterize him this, characterizes him, you know, Daniel as this guy who serves God continually. You know, King Darius knew this about Daniel, and his enemies knew this about Daniel too, didn't they? That's why they had to trump up these charges against him. And I pray, you know, that's our testimony, both individually and as a fellowship. You know, I've known many of you in here for many years, and I do know that about you. And that's been a great example and encouragement to me in my own walk. You know, I tried for a long time to kind of be a Christian on my own. I had an idea of what it was to believe in Christ, and I did believe. I believed the gospel, I mean, from front to back. I didn't ever doubt anything. The virgin birth, the, you know, uh, whatever, I mean, name it. You know, rising from the dead on the third day, crucified. I mean, I believed all that, you know, for sure. But it wasn't until that I saw examples of other men in my life who I respected that loved and served God continually that I knew what it was to even really be a true disciple of Christ. You know, and that's kind of a disconnect that we have in our society. We think that if we believe something, that's enough. But belief, obviously, we know, has to have an impact on your life like Daniel's, you know, to where, you know, there was no fault in him. He didn't cheat on his taxes, You know, he didn't hide things from the king. He didn't have his own little stash over here where he was skimming off the top and all this stuff. There was nothing that they could do to accuse him of because he served God continually. And like I said, as you guys have been an example to me, as men in this fellowship have been an example to me and helped me in my walk, I wonder if even perhaps Daniel at this point when he received that judgment to go to the lion's that he wasn't emboldened to walk into that den by the previous trial of his three friends. You know, they're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You guys, you know, the popular Babylonian names they were given, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The same three friends of Daniel also recorded in the book of Daniel. I'm sure you remember the story. If you're You know, again, this is one of our big Sunday school Bible stories where these three guys are thrown into this blazing furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, simply for being faithful to God, for refusing to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made in his own image. And I love how he says, okay, if you bow down and worship, because, you know, you can tell Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to just slaughter these guys either. These are valuable men, These men are righteous and good and faithful. And he doesn't want to kill them. He gives them one last chance. Okay, when you hear the band start up and you fall down before this image, it's all good. It's all forgiven. But if you don't, you're going to get thrown into that fire. And then he, you know, this classic statement, and what God will deliver you from my hands? And we see his pride. You know, what God? You know, these statues around you think they're going to help you? He didn't even have faith in his own gods. He thought he was more powerful than the gods that he was commanding other people to serve. But yet, we know that they were delivered by one who was in the furnace with them that had the appearance of the Son of God. And they come out, and then not a singed hair, not even the smell of smoke on their clothes which I think is amazing. Any of you that like camping, I mean, you smell like smoke for a week afterwards, right? I mean, you can't even get it out of your hair. They're in this blazing furnace. Not the smell of smoke, not anything. And we're also told that at that time that their enemies were, you know, suffered retribution. Were also thrown into the fire and that King Nebuchadnezzar also confesses his faith in this great living God. And I wonder if that incident emboldened Daniel in that time. That's how when we go through trials and we see God's miraculous work, it encourages those around us. You know, when we have that testimony, we see how it affects the unbelieving world, that we serve him continually, not ourselves, but him, that we will not worship the gods of this world regardless of the cost That we will willingly lay down our lives, whether literally or figuratively, for the truth of the gospel. And that's our heritage as Christians here today. That's why we're here. Because Christians for thousands of years have taken that stand. And have not renounced their faith. Would rather suffer persecution and death. And that's what's going on all around the world right now. It's not going on here yet to that extent. But you know what? It sure is going on politically politically. You talk about political suicide? Stand up for the doctrines of the Christian faith. Say you believe in the second coming of Christ and see what persecution you will endure. Say that you believe that there's only one way to be saved, one name under heaven, Jesus Christ, to be saved, and you will suffer persecution. It is going on on a different level. You know, I don't want to put our trials on, you know, the same level as those brothers and sisters that are being killed for their faith in the Middle East or wherever. But that's our heritage, guys, to be like. And I love I love when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I love their prayer or their response, rather, to Nebuchadnezzar when they say, we don't know if God's going to deliver us or not. We know He can, but we don't know if He's going to or not. But if He doesn't, we we're still not going to bow down before that, no matter what happens. And I love that they don't have any presumption because they just, you know, and I think that should be our heart today. We don't, we're not, we're responsible for the outcome. We're not responsible for the judgments of this world. We're just responsible to stand. And that's what these men did, and that's what Daniel did. So in this account of Daniel, I mean, what, I, what we're obviously um, You know, for me, you start to see all these parallels with Jesus, with our Lord, you know, and really prefiguring what our Savior would be like in a lot of ways. And again, I'm not putting Daniel. Daniel was a flawed man with a nature just like you and I. He wasn't, um, you know, it's because of the choices he made, because of the priorities he set for his own life that he was, he's the example that he is now. He wasn't divine. Our Lord is divine, so don't make... But we see these parallels, as prefiguring of what Jesus would be like and what he was like when we look at Daniel's life. You know, first of all, we see Daniel was a slave. All right, he was one of these young men that was taken forcibly from his home in Israel by the Babylonian army. You know, there's some that suspect he was, he was made a eunuch, and that could be possible but he was a slave and he willingly accepted that role and God prospered him in that role but then we look at Jesus the king of kings the lord of lords the very agent of creation i mean the sustainer of all life the light of the world unlike daniel wasn't taken forcibly wasn't forced into this state of slavery He willingly humbled himself to the point of slavery. And we have this real vivid example of it, you know, kind of at, even, you could say, kind of coming to the culmination of his earthly ministry where he washed the disciples' feet. And that's in John 13. I'll go ahead ahead and read it. Uh, 12 through 17. John 13, 12 through 17. And he says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord for you and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And we'll end there. But, you know, washing feet in this culture, and I would say really even in our culture, was one of those household tasks relegated not only to servants, but to the lowest of servants. It was a dirty, humiliating chore. And yet Jesus gave us this example of how far he was willing to go to demonstrate his love and how far he expects us to go for him and for one another. Now, when he says, what I've just done, I want you to do, I think we can all assume he doesn't mean we should have foot washing parties. That can, be, that can be something that God can use. But I think he's speaking to a larger um, application as far as are we willing to debase ourselves to be there for one another? You know, are we willing to do something that's embarrassing or time-consuming or something that would be considered beneath us for somebody else? You know, I was my wife and I walked up to... Um, Skyline Drive. We walk Skyline Drive every now and then together. And uh, there's a parking lot. Has anybody do that? There's two parking lots up there. So for some reason, there's a real issue about how to park in this parking lot. There's no marked spaces or anything. It's just these two kind of round lots. So we get back to our car, and I'm parked kind of diagonally in towards the fence and someone parked right behind me (laughs) i thought who would do that who does that you know what i mean do you not have any (laughs) self-awareness at all that someone's going to come back to this car and have to back it out and work around your car to try to get out of this parking lot and it's just they did they obviously just didn't care i mean or didn't even think about it or whatever. You know, guys, we're confronted with those kind of situations all the time, these small things, and we say, you know, I'm not gonna give up my parking spot. I'm not gonna give up my place in line. I'm not gonna give up anything for this person over here. Why should I? You know, and we fall into that realm of thinking. Obviously, God calls us to a great, you know, a greater effort than simply that, but just to even have that self-awareness when we're out in the world how are we affecting other people you know if i you know and i'm just going to keep using driving there's so many things that we can do in driving that will simply you know not cause conflict with that person i think that i think god smiles on that if we can drive in a certain way that causes the guy behind us not to you know make hand gestures and and use language that he shouldn't you know i think that pleases god Obviously, again, he's calling us to a much greater thing. But just to have that awareness, we're servants to the world. We're servants to one another, just like he was a servant to us. You know, and how often we're just so, we're so wrapped up in our own thing that we forget that. But man, you know, Jesus has taken us to this whole other level of not only am I your Lord, but I'm going to be your slave. How much more should you be serving one another? You know, the second point that I see in Daniel's life was Daniel was blameless, like we've talked about a couple times. I'm not saying he was without sin. I'm saying he conducted himself in such a way as to be a witness to the world around him. You know, his accusers, again, they had no evidence against him. They could find no fault in him. You know, there's this, there's this idea that if you get audited by the IRS that's a scary thing. You might have everything in order, but you don't know. They might find something and this and that. I mean, you know, I got audited one time. I have an accountant and everything, and thank God he took care of it, and I didn't hear anything about it. But there was a little bit of like, hmm, I hope everything's okay. You know, but isn't there that thing within us that we you know, we want to be blameless. We want to live our lives. But, you know, what I realize about myself is we're so blinded sometimes to what's going on in our own hearts and our own minds that, you know, are we? But David's, I mean, excuse me, I did it. Daniel was blameless. And like Daniel, Jesus in John uh, chapter 8, he says, Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? You know, which of you convicts me of sin? You know, and that's our Lord. He could stand up be, before the most righteous men of that community. Apparently, you know, and outward in keeping the law, these men who were extremely learned and devout, and he could ask them point blank, "Which of you convicts me of sin?" Now, if I did that, I'm sure some hands would go up, <laughs> right? Chuck would be back like, I got, something. I got something on you, you know? But no one answered a word. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? I'm sure my wife would raise her hand. She's like, she'd be demure about it, I'm sure. Maybe she'd tell me later. But we're told plainly also, just about Jesus', you know, that Pontius Pilate, this judge, this hard Roman, this hardened man who was dealing with so much, you know, the rebellion and the wars and the politics of Rome and all this stuff, and he says plainly to the Jews, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. And then we remember this Roman centurion, too, stationed at the cross, seeing Jesus suffer and all the accompanying signs. He's quoted as saying, Certainly this man was innocent. This hardened Roman centurion, again, who had undoubtedly seen hundreds of guilty men die, knew Jesus was different. That this was probably the most, the only innocent man. He had ever seen in his life. You know, know that being blameless, and then we're coming, you know, come back around a little bit. Know that being blameless, though, that being obedient and righteous, that's no guarantee against tribulation and travail in this world. Actually, as we see in Daniel's life and in the life of our Savior, it's a guarantee of persecution. You know, I love Apostle Paul. He puts it very plainly in writing to Timothy. His son in the faith in 2 Timothy, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, you know, we see it in our society today already. Daniel had enemies. You know, John, uh, again, he records the words of Jesus in chapter 15. He says, If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. And, you know, there's people that hate Jesus today. You think, why? Why do you hate Jesus? There's those people that are kind of indifferent, but there's those people still today, that spirit of hatred that's been passed down for all these thousands of years. You know, you watch a movie or something, and all of a sudden, his name is the name that's a curse word in the movie. You know, why isn't it some other deity or some other God or anything, but it's always His name that they use? You know, and He says again, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause." And that's a quote Jesus is citing, Psalm 35, written by David, who also had a, you know, knew a thing or two about having enemies. This man of war who constantly fought the enemies of God, some of his own making and some not. You know? He was loyal and a loving servant to King Saul, and yet Saul for years sought to kill him and sought to take him out. You know, Jesus was constantly challenged and tested by the religious leaders of the day, but because of their envy and their hatred, they conspired to murder him despite all the miracles and good works he did. He asked them one time, he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't making himself out to be something. That he was God, and the works that he was doing proved that to them. But that didn't matter. They didn't care. They hated him without a cause, even contrary to... I mean, how can you hate a guy... That can feed 5,000 people with a basket full of food? How can you hate someone that can make the lame walk and the blind see and heal the sick? You know, how can you hate someone like that? It's utterly irrational. But they hated him because he was who he said he was. You know, they didn't want to hear the truth, they worshiped themselves and they didn't want another God. You know, we think of his miracles that he did, his first miracle at the wedding in Capernaum, changing water to wine. And we think about that, and that's a, that's a great party trick, but I've, I've kind of taught on this before. But the, the molecular change that has to happen from water to wine and the process, the aging, the everything that has to go on, it demonstrates this incredible molecular control of matter itself. It's truly a proof of his divinity. And we can look at all the other miracles. I had a number of them written down here. We have a few more pages. But think about them themselves. You think of controlling the wind and the waves and how He had mastery and supremacy over even the elements themselves, proving again He was God. And finally down to even raising the dead demonstrating His supremacy over death itself, that great conqueror over which no man had ever prevailed before that. Yet for all this, they hated Him. They tried to stone Him. And don't think that walking through this life, that being righteous, that being blameless, is going to prevent you from having enemies. It's going to make you enemies. It's going to cause you to have enemies. I know in my life, sometimes you think, if I just do what's right, everything's going to work out, right? I'm not going to, I mean, no, but no, that's not, how, that's not how it works. That's not how it worked for Daniel. That's not how it worked for our Savior. That's not how it's going to work for us. And I would say if you are constantly trying to avoid conflict, all you're going to do, you're going to end up weak and compromised and ineffective, you know, the one thing I've learned in my job is it's truly impossible to please everyone all the time. And the most offensive thing in the world today, what is that thing? What do you think? What's the most offensive thing in our society today? It's the truth. It's the truth. And that's what Jesus said in standing before Pontius Pilate. I've come to testify of the truth. And Pontius would just say, what is truth? What is truth? I mean, it's this, it's that. This guy says this, everything. you got to be more open-minded. Come on, it's all relative. I mean, it's, it's just shades of gray. There's no black and white. There's nothing more offensive today than the truth. And if you speak the truth, if you stand for the truth, if you live for the truth, you will have enemies. And that sounds discouraging, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but Jesus said in this great way, he says in John, again, I'm just, you know, I'm a lot in John. He says, I've said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but have take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's the, that's the thing. That's David being saved, um, Daniel, <laughs> being saved from the lions. That's that overcoming, that's that victory that he promises us. And if not, in this life, in the life to come. Like I said, a lot of our, you know ancestors in the faith they weren't delivered from the lions they went to the lions and they gave up their lives rather than renouncing their faith but they overcame the world because they don't die they didn't die they're alive today and that's what we understand but be content this morning to know that in him you have peace peace with god lasting and eternal peace you know, but as we exist in this world, tribulation is just part of the package. But again, just, it's never about tribulation itself. It's never about, you know, suffering itself. It's always for a greater and more miraculous work, like I said before, that's impossible otherwise. And that's the faith that we have to see in the, in the, in the time when we're going through this, that God is doing something great on the other side of it. And we have to trust that. And we have so much evidence Those of the, like, men like Daniel that we see in the scriptures, those among us, those around us. You know, back to Jesus' miracles, I mentioned the feeding of the 5,000, right? And he did this twice, which is amazing. But we remember that he, um, he asked the disciples, well, the disciples, they come to him first and they say, Lord, we got a lot of people out here, we're out in the middle of nowhere, we've got to send these people home. What are we going to do? I mean, they're going to be hungry, they're thirsty, they're going to faint. And Jesus says, you know, very cavalier, I think. he's says, well, you just give them something to eat. Feed them, man, you know. And right then there's this crisis. Me? Me? You're calling me to do this? What, what can I do? You know? But if we go back, what if Jesus took their advice and sent everybody home? You know? They had enough food for a a meager meal among themselves, some bread, some fish. They sit on the hillside. They have a little meal. They shoot the breeze, and that's it, right? I mean, that's the end of the story. So what? But Jesus wanted a crisis here. He needed a crisis. He needed a problem because he wanted to solve it, and he wanted to glorify himself and demonstrate his nature to his disciples and to all those other people And even to us today, and so he needed that to happen. That's why he looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. You know, and right then, oh man, we didn't expect that. We thought we were, we had a pretty rational and compassionate plan, right? Just send them home. And guys, that's my first instinct too. If there's a crisis or a problem, number one, can I simply eliminate the problem? That's the first solution, right? Right? If there's a problem, there's somebody in your life that's giving you a hard time, you just delete them from your phone and never talk to them again. Or maybe you leave their name in there so you know if they're calling, you say, oh, no, never. I actually have a number in my phone that says, never, ever, ever answer. That's their name. So when I look at it, (laughs) never, ever, ever answer. Now, that was a legitimate thing. That had to happen. So I don't make excuses or apologies for that. But... (laughs) Oftentimes, that's not the answer. Most of the time, it's not. God wants us to be involved in one another's life. The problem is not, the the solution is not simply eliminate the problem. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is this ultimate problem solver because that's how he builds faith. That's how he builds perseverance and endurance. And that's not how we see miracles, guys. Again, if they just sat on the hillside and had a nice, you know, fish sandwich or whatever, you know, they don't see the miracle. And that's when we see that. It's through. Oftentimes, it's through greatest tribulation, the greatest trials we can endure, bring the greatest miracle in our life. You know, yeah, I brought up a person, I mean, there's, that's, that's often kind of, you know, there's, there's trials of finances, there's tribulations that have to do with certain things, but I think that what really affects our heart the most is, is just people, it's just having people that hurt us, people that we perceive that have betrayed us or something like that. And, you know, the closer you are, the more you love somebody, the more access they have to that place in your heart that truly, you know, can be devastating. And it's those, you know, we look at those, these people, these, these, these enemies, you know, um, in a way that we want, like I said, to eliminate any kind of contact with them, to uh, just put them in that category of, you know, this person is our enemy for this reason, for that reason. They did this to me. They did that to me. We know in Matthew 5, Jesus taught, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that the way it should go? <laughs> Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I mean, that was what was taught. That's what the Jews taught. If someone's your enemy, and that's Israel today, that's what they say: if you kill one of ours, we will kill a hundred of yours. You know, that's kind of their mentality there, and they've lived under this this horrible oppression, this this violence for so long that that's their You know, their military is very, you know, don't mess with them. You throw a rock at me, I I will bomb you. You know, if you, and I'm not, you know, I'm all, I mean, they have to defend themselves. I'm on Israel's side in this. But that's still their mentality today. You know, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Take vengeance on your enemies. If they kill you, if they attack you, then attack them back with such fury that they will never want to do it again. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus taught us, and that's what he demonstrated on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't. They know not what they do. Forgive them. And Jesus even praying for his enemies at the point of his death, at his ag in the midst of his agony. You know, we see just talking about enemies. We see it today a lot in professional sports. You know, there's so many. I'm just gonna. We're trying to try to compact a little bit. But back in the day, if you watched the NFL, the NBA, I mean, these teams truly hated one another. You know, you remember some of the rivalries that used to go on and this intense, fiery competition. Well, it's not really like that today anymore. It's basically like a millionaire's club. I mean, these guys have all grown up together. They went to summer camp together. They get traded all the time. You know, a guy you're playing against today could be on your team tomorrow. And a lot of sports fans really hate that. I mean, they say, man, it's just not the same. It's not like it used to be, you know, because we like to see that really tough competition and everything. But there's also this aspect of it, well, you know, guys aren't getting, you know, taken out like they used to be. You know, instead of, you know, taking some, you know, vicious hit to some guy's head because you perceive him as this enemy, you, you maybe you wrap him up, you take him down, and you play the next play. And I'm, you know, say what you will about sports, but guys, that's how, that's the heart that we need to have. These guys that we perceive today maybe as our enemies, I mean, they could be our brothers and sisters tomorrow. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us in in this message. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's how God is. You know, when we wake up in the morning, the sun doesn't just shine on those, you know, happy little Christians running around. It shines on everybody. And that's what God wants His grace to shine on everybody. And He uses us to do that. You know, the last thing, I'm going to skip ahead because I think it's important. You know, the last thing we see with David, uh, Daniel, you know what I'm talking about. He was exalted. He was exalted over and over and over again. You know, he was exalted as a young man when he, when he renounced all the delicacies of the king and he said, I, I'm not going to defile myself with that garbage. I'm not going to be like everybody else. You know, the king saw that in him and exalted him to this place of authority, him and his uh, three friends. He was exalted after this account of the lion's den where, you know, because and exalted kind of in this indirect way where Darius is all of a sudden, it's, it's Daniel's God that we all need to worship. And instantly, that puts Daniel in this place of, yeah, my God, my God. I would say he took personal pride in that, but what a, what a cool thing, you know, for him to be exalted in that way. That's what God wants, us, wants for us too. You know, we've talked a lot about suffering and, and humiliation and hardship this morning. But again, it's always for a greater good purpose that God has. That's real easy to stand up here and say, but when we start going through things, that's when it gets hard. That's when we start to doubt. That's when we wonder, why is God allowing this? Why would God allow this? And we ask all these questions, and it's totally normal to ask that. That's not a sin to question at times and to, and to feel weak in your faith. But, you know, 1 Peter, this man who betrayed Jesus Christ, the only apostle that we're even recorded did that. This man who denied Jesus this horrible sin, and and we know he was just broken, and he went out and wept, and he failed so miserably. But then we know that Jesus came specifically on the beach that morning and restored Peter. And now Peter writes years later, says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, and Peter understood, just like I'm sure Daniel understood, that humility, that humbling, it's not this debasement. It's not this thing that we would have as we would, you know, humble ourselves before some pagan king or something. You know, it's, it's to exalt us. Like God says, so that at the, at the proper time... In God's time, at the time that He's preordained, that He's planned for you, He will exalt you. And not exalting in this this self um, fulfilling way, or not even exalting you over one another or putting you on this place of prominence, but exalting you over your guilt, exalting you over your sin, over the curse of death in this world, exalting you over your circumstances. And finally, exalting you into this place where you become heirs of eternal life. And that's what God has through all of this. I mean, it's, it's the simple stuff. It's, it's Christianity 101, right? But it's good to be reminded this morning. I just want us to take, you know, hope in, in the fact that whatever we're going through today, it's not because God, again, gets a kick out of seeing us suffer. It's not he it gets a kick out of seeing us beg him for things. You know, that's this pagan idolatry kind of mentality. And if we can have that kind of faith, if we can have that kind of trust, man, what great things God wants to do in our life and in the life of those whom we love, who we know, our family members who don't know God, even those people in our life maybe now that we perceive as some sort of enemy or some sort of threat, and just see what God has in store for you. So I'll pray. Justin, are you doing the last song? Let's we can do. Jesus also taught us, "If you seek me, you'll find me." It's just that simple, you know. This week, I encourage you and even myself this morning: seek Him in His Word, seek Him in prayer. And this verse in one of Psalm one hundred five, verses three and four, it says, "Glory in His holy name." Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek. His presence continually. And Lord, we just... Uh...